Okay, Jeremy, we're back for our second course of whatever we're calling this. I say we call it healthy eating. Let's nourish our brains with good information. Does that does that sound appealing and appetizing to you? It's a it's a double mint commercial. Double <laughs> double your pleasure. I love that. That's double great. your friend's fun. Your pod, <laughs> your doctor friend's fun. Just keep riffing. We'll get it eventually. Uh, all right. So last. Last time, uh, I was going to say last week, but it wasn't last week. Last time we talked about... Um, Previously on Your Doctor Friends. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then coming up on Your Doctor Friends. Yeah, previously we talked about the advantages or disadvantages of turf versus grass on fields. Um, and now we're going to pivot to another topic, which is weighty. I read a cool study recently, which made me go down a deep dive of all the studies about this thing, and it's about weighted blankets, and if they work, and what do they work for, and are they worth it? And I love it. I, think, I have yeah. a weighted blanket. Do you have a weighted blanket? Yeah, I do. I feel like they, they like super popped on the market in like 2018, 2019, and everybody wanted one, and then we kind of forgot about it. Now there's all this data about it, and I would love to talk about it because it's oh, kind of cool. I don't know any of the data. I just know mm. it feels like a great hug, so it I'm excited sure to hear about yours. Yeah. Also, you said you said pivot, and I'm on the last episode of Friends watching it all the way through on 10 seasons straight to like 250-plus episodes, so I just have to say real quick, pivot! Pivot! <laughs> shut up, shut up, shut up! <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I have one on my bed. I use it every night. I love I it. I love it. All right. Well, I'd love to talk about this new study, and then it kind of put me down a rabbit hole of other studies about weighted blankets, because they have different uses, and there's different evidence to support their uses. So I'd love to delve into that. Does that sound something like you'd be interested in, Jeremy? Yes. I want to know if what I'm doing is doing anything, or if it's just a big hug. I love it. All right. Let's do it. Welcome to Your Doctor Friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen, and we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions, and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. All right, Jeremy, we're back. Let's talk about weighted blankets. Um... So there's a new study that was titled Weighted Blankets Enhance Patient Experience by Reducing Anxiety During Chemotherapy, which mm. that's what came across. I feel like it was in my email um, that I get like interesting emails about studies that came up. Um, so this was a study conducted at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute that had shown that weighted blankets decreased anxiety during chemotherapy infusions when used as a supportive care measure. This was according to data presented at the Oncology Nursing Society Congress. It was actually a poster um, and I'll link in the show notes that the poster is really nice looking and it kind of encapsulates nicely in one one shot, you know, these people's, um, these nurses' research project. You're used to that. You've presented posters before, Jeremy, yeah. right? Yeah. Mine are never pretty. So I'd, <laughs> I, I just use, they're huge and they get the data out there. So yeah. I, I appreciate somebody who puts some design elements into theirs. So um, just to preface, in the world of oncology, patients have a lot of anxiety when they get their diagnosis, clearly. Um, and it resurfaces or becomes heightened when they start their first few treatments. So in this study at Dana-Farber, patients reported that anxiety is the third most common symptoms that they experience. Hmm. So pretty darn common, you know, sure. uh, related to cancer diagnoses and then the treatment of it. So the literature tells us that mostly what's been used in the past in medicine to sort of combat anxiety are cognitive behavioral therapies like biofeedback and desensitization or counseling. And those kinds of treatments for patients who have really high anxiety 
have been used and have been very helpful. But other disciplines were starting to use this sort of deep pressure tissue technique, which is really what a weighted blanket is. They Mm. use this approach for individuals with autism, uh, people at schools, in dental offices where there's a lot of high anxiety. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, it sounds to me that like you you pointed out a few different things that are situational. So there's Mm -hmm. a baseline anxiety. There's how much anxiety I already have. There's anxiety about my diagnosis, but now I'm going to get a treatment or I'm at a dentist office or I'm autistic and I'm being put into a specific situation and I need an additional thing. So whether I'm doing CBT or therapy, something additionally would be nice because my anxiety level is peaking. It's like an added insulin dose if my sugar was peaking. Exactly. Oh, I love it. Your, Your baseline and your bolus. Right. Exactly. So, um, In this research project, the quote is, in our research, we realized that there's not much research in oncology regarding the use of a weighted blanket. So in this study, they used medical grade materials. So they had to meet their infection control standards. Um, The blanket evenly distributed weight and could be taken off at any time during treatment. And this, the, the inclusion criteria were treatment naive patients. So it was their first and second chemo infusion ever. And they gave them a pre-survey with the staff or the nurse before their chemotherapy treatment. And then the blanket was applied for 20 minutes. And then they had a post-survey. So the conclusions were that extreme anxiety, so people that noted that their anxiety was at a really high level, went down from 6% of patients till after this, it was zero. Hmm. Nobody said that they had extreme anxiety afterwards. So that's just good. And then moderate anxiety went down from 28% of patients before the intervention to 18%. So surveys about the usability of the blanket were favorable. Patients didn't feel like it interfered with the nurse's ability to provide their care, and the nurses agreed. It didn't get in the way. Um, this is clearly a very low-risk study. Um, can you think of any limitations to this? Like, what, what, do you, what would you pick out about, like, hmm, this could be better potentially if there was another study in the future? Yeah, so treatment naive, you mentioned the chemotherapy, or did these people have to have not also not used a, a weighted blanket before, or did that not matter? I don't think that mattered. Okay, and then the blanket was directed to use a specific way, or like yeah, they could do it anything they wanted to? Put it on them comfortably, yeah. Sure. All right, well, there's a lot of fat variables that go into this. Yeah. Um, I guess in reality, doing it in a randomized perspective format where you're basically randomizing who gets it and also doing it not necessarily looking back on, but looking forward should account for those things. So I think reasonably, and the intervention is so low risk and low cost probably that I think there's not a huge amount of weaknesses here. What weaknesses did you think of? No, I just what you said, like there wasn't a control group. And then the there was very subjective survey-based patient scoring. It was the only oh, thing. There wasn't so an there, objective measure. So they didn't measure. have half yeah. the people getting no blanket and Correct. comparing it to them? Oh, it was okay. Just putting so blankets is... on people and seeing how they feel. Oh, it seems like a huge miss to me. Like, why well, didn't you just survey the other people? Right. Uh, <laughs> smart. Agreed. Uh, and that's what led me down a rabbit hole of other research, um, some of the psychiatry research, which is a bit more robust, and we can talk about that. But the cool thing is about this study is because it was easy to implement, it was quick. It also was, it, it happened right at the beginning of COVID. So it was way more difficult to provide physical human touch to patients undergoing chemo, and patients were often required to be completely alone during treatment. So it was kind of the situation of like, okay, we see a need right now. Why don't we do a study about it? because we have access to these blankets that are safe and 
you know, we can wash them or, or put a cover on them or clean them enough so that they maintain our infectious control standards. But maybe it's one little thing that we can use to make these folks that are probably really scared in an environment where they basically have to be alone without someone to come there to support them during a pandemic. And then, okay, well, let's do a little study about it. So did they mention the weight of the blanket specifically? I believe this one, it was either 14 or 20 pounds. I'd have to look at it again. Um, But other studies have done different weights as well and kind of seen different outcomes. Yeah, I'm interested to hear you talk about that because I feel like that always comes up because you're looking, what weight blanket do I need? And if you had somebody who weighs 100 pounds and somebody who weighs 200 pounds, the general recommendations, I think, change. I don't know if there's science behind that. But I do think that if you Googled it right now and said, what weight weighted yeah, blanket do i need sure it does go based off your weight, your weight yeah like a kid yeah. versus an adult versus an adult of a right. higher weight yeah okay also seems like this was not a byob situation like they wouldn't <laughs> want my blanket that has my dog all over it uh, coming in there <laughs> is what you're saying fur. yeah <laughs> but i love my blankets but i have to use their blanket yes, it sounds of course. like right okay. infectious the- control standards um, they yeah, can't so, sterilize my blanket. Uh, I think that would take a lot of effort. Probably would it would exceed the uh, the cost that was or the the budget for this study. Um, so Dana Farber Cancer Institute uh, plans to implement weighted blankets throughout all of their cancer care for comfort and anxiety management based on these results. So yeah. I thought that was pretty rad. So let's look through some literature on weighted blankets. So a few studies i won't go crazy but there was one called it was a meta-analysis which is always nice right it's like do my work for me put all the book reports together so meta um so this was called weighted blanket use a systematic review it was in the american journal of occupational therapy this was in march and april of 2020 who was getting anything published in march and april of 2020 god bless the american journal of occupational therapy in fairness they probably actually had a lot of time to do the publishing yeah. and their data was already collected so that's actually a great time to get Perfect a study time, published. actually yeah, yeah. So eight studies were included. Uh, Four of them were level one, two were level three, and two were level four studies. So kind of run a gamut of of quality of study. Um, The outcomes of these studies suggest that weighted blankets have the potential to be beneficial in limited settings and populations. So ringing endorsement there. Um, Weighted blankets may be an appropriate therapeutic tool in reducing anxiety. However, there's not maybe not enough evidence to suggest that they're helpful with insomnia within this meta-analysis here. So I want to delve into a study that was really interesting, and it was very detailed. And uh, this was from March of 2021. It was in the Journal of Integrative Medicine. Um, and the title was, Using Weighted Blankets in an Inpatient Mental Health Hospital to Decrease Anxiety. Mm. Interesting implications here. So these were, the population studied were involuntarily admitted patients that were in an inpatient um, psychiatric hospital, mental health so hospital. So hypothetically, really poorly controlled mental health issues. Yeah, somebody in some form of crisis. Um, yes. You know, these they were involuntarily admitted. They were not actively psychotic at the time of this study. Sure. Um, there was a treatment and a control group. Um, so the control group had uh, nothing, or I think it had a blanket that had just like plastic things in it, and it, it, it didn't have weight. It had a normal blanket weight to it. And then there was, within the treatment group, there was... Um, a 20-pound blanket, a 14-pound blanket, and a 5-pound lap pad. Um, so there were 61 people in the control group and 61 people in the treatment group, um, and they used it for 20 minutes. Um, so before and after the intervention, they uh, measured their pulse, 
via a pulse oximeter like you wear in your finger. Um, and they also used a validated anxiety survey scale before and afterwards. So you get kind of the subjective and a little bit of objective data, which I thought was pretty cool. The results show that there was a statistically significant, I can never say that easily. Can you say that easily? Statistically significant? I'm pretty good at it when it's not being recorded for a podcast. <laughs> I, I have so much sibilance in my mouth, I know too. It's probably hard for our, our listeners to listen to. Um, there was a drop in anxiety for adults at this inpatient facility as shown by the validated scores and also a drop in their pulse rates before and afterwards. Um, so the study suggests that this is a possible alternative to medications, seclusion, and physical restraints, which yeah. are not patient-centered or trauma-supported. Interesting. Yeah. And did the weight of the blanket matter? Not really, no. Oh, interesting. So the, the even the little lap pad that in my head I had this image of the thing they put on you in an x-ray, like that little thing that goes like uh, the, the lead thing. Yeah. Like that guy gets a 20-pound comfortable blanket and I get this little like like lead vest on You get my a neck. cat on your lap is what you get. <laughs> you get Ribby over here. Yeah. We're just sitting. If you, I wonder if they could make them purr <laughs> and need your lap. We'll, we'll make a study. It's fine. By we, I mean me. Um, all right. So many other studies were looking at other outcomes like chronic pain or health outcomes of older people living in nursing homes or people with autism spectrum disorder. Um, for insomnia, I looked at a, a fair amount of studies. The outcomes are kind of mixed. Um, there was one that said a randomized controlled study of weighted chain blankets for insomnia in psychiatric disorders, which at first I was like, oh, wait, okay, wait, what here? But basically they were saying that insomnia rates were higher in people with co-occurring mental health diagnoses like anxiety or depression, which are already terrifically prevalent conditions um, in the U.S., we'll say at least. Um, so this was in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine from September of 2020. Um, among adults, they said uh, insomnia is one of the most prevalent psychiatric conditions. It's interesting for me to think of insomnia as a psychiatric condition. Would you would you categorize it as that, Jeremy? I, I think for a long time we didn't. Like, well, I shouldn't say that. The medical, the DSM probably did. Like, mm. the, it probably was a diagnosis. But sure. I think as a society, we don't think of it as insomnia just the way you said as a psychiatric condition. But anybody who has been an insomniac or read a book by somebody who was writing their autobiography of being yeah. an insomniac knows that it is significantly, I mean, it can lead to psychosis. Yes. But if you have an underlying mental health condition and you have insomnia, Ugh. now you're, oh my gosh, you're devastating. You're, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But it is interesting. It's one of those things that I think people would, like, it's okay to have a sleep problem, like stigma wise, but it seems less okay to have a mental health problem. So like, this is one of the things that kind of bridges both of it. It's like in the wellness world and in the psychiatric world and in the just mental health behavioral world too. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, Jennifer Aniston's doing insomnia commercials, right? So is she? like, <laughs> for yeah, what? I don't remember. It, it, it's sometime in the last year. I think it was for a, a company, but it was, it was pro insomnia as if she'd had it. Um, so you know, maybe she does. Been... I don't know. She, and I'm sure Avino sh is the reason why her skin is so great. I think when you say, I'm sure she does, insomnia <laughs> is incredibly common. Yes. We, we live in a society that, that almost like rewards insomnia. Like Correct. when you show up and you're like, wow, I'm so tired because I work so hard and I was up all night and you're like, Oh, good for you. Yeah. I'm so, you know, like that, that, we reward insomnia. So it's also a society that doesn't necessarily support parents in general or caregiving no, parents, you know, and that's just part of your life as a caregiving parent is being up with little ones. And I, 
I cannot imagine. <laughs> I have enough problems with this cat behind me waking me up at four o'clock in the morning for food every 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 day. I love no how how every time you pat the the Ribby. cat behind you, that mm-hmm. t- Ribby's tail is just like flapping in the wind mm-hmm. back there. It's like it's I, your hair is actually flapping with it. It's like there's. <laughs> It's very visual. Hopefully this one goes on YouTube. Yeah, <laughs> I'll try to cut it as such. Um, yeah, so this was a Swedish study, actually. So in this Swedish randomized study, I feel like the Swedes, this is such a great idea for them to do. I the just, Scandinavian studies are always oh, dominant. Norwegian so and Swedish, they're really good, yeah. Well, and they that, have socialized health care, so they can follow it really well. Absolutely, yeah. There's less dropout. There's, it's just more organized. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So... Um, In this Swedish randomized study, uh, weighted blankets showed a significant effect on insomnia in patients with major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, and generalized anxiety disorder, or ADHD. Yeah. So, I don't know. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, This is a quote from Dr. Christina uh, Cusin. She's an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. She says, Weighted blankets have been around for a long time, especially for kids with autism or behavioral disturbances. It's one of the sensory tools commonly used in psychiatric units. Patients who are in distress may choose different types of sensory activities, like holding a cold object, smelling particular aromas, manipulating dough, building objects, doing arts and crafts to try to calm down. What does this remind you of, of if you had to think of a, a prior episode of this podcast? Is it our ADHD episode? That a bit, but it reminds me of our trauma processing episodes with Rose, like our bonus episode from it was uh, July 17th of 2022. It was called mindful mindfulness techniques for trauma processing with Rose. You know, sometimes we just all need a hug or at least an opportunity to enjoy a pleasant sensory experience to calm ourselves Mm. and be present. So that was pretty much all of my data about uh, about weighted blankets. What do you think about them? Yeah, I think in society, when we talk about looking at science behind products that are generally for sale, yes, a lot of it comes down to, A, what's the risk? Right. Right. Like by doing it, are you putting yourself at risk for harm? And then B, what is like the cost of entry? Like, like how much capital are you going to put on the line for right. most likely, I feel like all of these studies... And maybe a good analog would be our LED light uh, yeah. conversation, right? Another one where like the risk is so low, but maybe the cost is a little higher. And the studies are always going to say maybe. Like it's just right. you're probably not going to get a lot of studies that say, yep, for sure. No doubt about it. So I think with weighted blankets, the cost to entry is pretty low these days. I, mean, I think if you when they search... first, yeah, I think when they first came out, like there was this they... article in Har- from the, the Harvard website and they were like, well, they can be up to several hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, like if you're getting them from Hummocker Schlemmer or whatever, like, or I don't know, Barabee. I just got one at, I got one at, yeah. I just got one at Target. It was great. And it comes with it with like a little duvet cover. So you can take that thing off and wash the cat hair off of it and put it back on. Yeah, I at this point the cost of entry is low. I know that if you search Amazon, you're talking thirty to sixty dollars or something yeah, like that. Sure. And the risks are low. Probably should be a little careful with kids, just because yeah. they you don't want to give them something weighted that they can't get out from underneath <laughs> yes. or something like that. But like for adults, the risk is very very low. Sure. And there's probably significant benefits that can come from this, and it's probably all individualized. Like, I love my weighted blankets, but I also don't 
have anxiety attacks. So I can't tell you like if I had an anxiety attack, if I used a weighted blanket, it would help me. But there's probably somebody else who would yeah. say, I've been able to stop taking certain medications because of my weighted blanket. And that anecdote, whether it is science backed or not, is powerful, yeah. right? Agreed. It's the same. It, we also talked about that in the uh, cold plunge episode where it's like, some of this stuff probably is true, but at the end of the day, it's really a personal experience. Right. And again, what are the risks? So in that episode, we went through all the risks that you should avoid for cold plunging sure. that would put you at harm. And if you're not doing anything that's going to risk harming you, in addition to, again, sacrificing whatever cost you're going to put into it, knowing that it may not have the effect you're looking for, little harm. So I love weighted blankets. Your data has encouraged me to keep using my weighted blanket and uh it's i do think it's very interesting in a world you presented the psychiatric situation we really struggle with um patients in the hospital especially who are having um um you know issues with mental status where where they're either uh, very combative or uh, they certainly are psychotic having trouble knowing mm -hmm. where they are and a lot of times that does lead to medication use that maybe is plus or minus on the research could have long-term harms. There's restraints, as you've already mentioned, yeah. which, again, are not necessarily proven and certainly are not all that humane. If this is something that would decrease the use of those, amen. Yeah, and especially in, in, in you know, so the... This the study that I opened up with that was um, at the Oncology Nursing Society Congress. One, I thought it was interesting that they made a point to say the neither the patient nor the the caregiving you know the nurse taking care of that patient during their what seemed like an outpatient infusion said that this interfered with their ability to do stuff. Mm -hmm. So like the, I like that they made a point of saying that to be like okay because I love the idea of bringing up logistically when you implement something, sometimes you run into stuff that you didn't think that you would find. And it's like, yeah, we put this blanket on them, but it was like, I couldn't get to their IVs and it was annoying. And so like, screw mm -hmm. it, scrap the whole thing. And then also that made me think of how not restful inpatient medical stays are. Like, I don't know if you've ever been in the hospital overnight or I been have, with somebody who brutal. has, it's brutal. Not only do you get interrupted a lot because you have to, because they're checking your vitals and maybe you have to have mm -hmm. nighttime medications or something's beeping. But recently I had a, a family member in the hospital for a few nights and they were so disrupted by the beds, the new beds that like are constantly inflating and deflating to prevent people from getting like decubitus ulcers and pressure sores in bed that they were like, I cannot sleep here. I feel like I'm losing my mind because I can't get any type of restful thing because the bed keeps going. <laughs> like, and I know that that's to create a better long-term outcome for people that are stuck in the hospital for long periods of time. But there, you know, there's trade-offs to some of these things that we are hoping for different outcomes. Yeah, totally. Well, and you have high V's in and things like that, so you can't yeah. turn the way you usually wouldn't sleep. And then the other thing is we always tell people, like, get up and walk and move. And, and having been an inpatient, you're like, I don't want to go in the hall. No. Like, I'm in a gown. I don't want to, I don't want people to see me, let alone, I don't want to be looking in other people's rooms. I, no, I just, I'm not... just going to stay in my room. So again, I, I, I think that anything you can do to make it more comfortable and maybe the, the onus here, I think I, your study maybe says, Instead of us putting the onus on the patient to say, bring some stuff that makes you comfortable, sure. we could be doing more things to say, listen, we have some options. Almost like when people go into labor and delivery now yeah. and they walk in and they have like a menu of things. Do you want the ball? Do you want the tub? Do mm -hmm. you want the, you know, like, do you want somebody to come in every once in a while and have words with you? Like they, they, they create kind of like a birth plan that allows yeah. you to be comfortable. Same thing if you're going to go to a cancer infusion center or you're going to be an inpatient in the hospital having a little menu of like, these are some things that we know that can make people more comfortable. Are you interested in trying any of these? And, yeah. and such. I, I think that that is... 
And I feel excellent, like excellent. We, we do a pretty good job of it, or at least in the institutions where I've worked for the pediatric floors for like child life specialists and people coming in to, you know, make the kids feel more human and make them feel like they're having less of a weird, scary experience and bringing in therapy animals and that kind of stuff. And I just don't know how often these measures are thought of in the adult inpatient setting when I know it's hard. It's like, what are our priorities? It's keeping people alive and making them better so you can get them out of the hospital so they can go home and then have outpatient treatment for sure. But I just feel like sometimes little things can make a big difference as far as someone's healing experience that is otherwise very disjointed in the hospital. And and yeah, again, humanization of that experience, I think, is valuable. All right. So summary is hospital systems that are listening, put the $30 weighted blanket on the on uh, charge it to the insurance of the $27,000 bill that already exists there anyways, right. and give us some damn weighted blankets in the, in yes. the hospital. Yes. Offer it to us. Yes. Or I can't just have Ribby come and sit on everybody's lap. I just can't. <laughs> you can have Archie. He's a therapy dog, so oh he could God. do it. Archie's the best. He's just the best animal. <laughs> so Red. he also is all over my weighted blanket that I'm not allowed to bring to the infusion center. Of course. Um, do you have anything from your dessert cart, Jeremy, that you'd oh, like to that, some yum yums for us? Okay. New Doctor Friends involves an entree and a dessert. And I'm in the dessert category this time. So we're going with a, a small story that I thought was interesting from the week. So this is from the New York Times. The average human body temperature is not really 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Did you know that? Is this a rectal temp or is this a, um, uh, a temporal scanner? This one was from temporal scanners. But oh. in reality, the answer is yes to all of it. Understood. So do you, under, do you know where the standard 98.6 came from? Um, from a band from the early 2000s. Yeah, 98 degrees. I like mm-hmm. that. Um, Nick Lachey did not come up with this. Um, oh, then I don't want to listen anymore. Yeah, this this is like a very similar story to like the BMI, but this one had a little bit better research behind sure. it, but still wasn't great. It was established 150 years ago by a German physician, Dr. Karl Wunderlich, who reportedly took over a million measurements from 25,000 people, and the temperatures ranged from 97.2 to 99.5. The average was 98.6. He also established 100.4 degrees as, quote, probably febrile. So there was a recent study, this is from the New York Times, I found this really, really interesting, that was published in September that evaluated the temperatures of more than 126,000 people between uh, 2008 and 2017 and found the average closer to 97.9. Other modern day studies have also reported similar numbers, and we don't actually know why this is. Um, Some have theorized that, like, we may be doing a better job collecting today than they did back then. Okay. That that's all that changed, that like our body temps actually haven't changed. There are some theories that we are actually cooler, that if you go back to 150 years ago, they didn't have things like good dental hygiene and antibiotics and all these other things that can lead to inflammation and potentially make us warmer to start with. Um, So found that a little interesting. I think that the biggest takeaway here, and I love this uh, uh, quote that was in this, um, article by Dr. Walid Javid. I'm going to spell it because I think I butchered it. It Last name is J-A-V-A-I-D. Okay. But uh, this doctor said, like there's a range for heart rate, there's a range for blood pressure, temperature should also have a range. Yeah. And so a range would account for the natural variability in temperature that occurs across gender and age. Women tend to run slightly warmer than men. Older adults run cooler than younger people. Additionally, everyone's body temperature fluctuates throughout the day. It's typically lowest in the morning and highest in the late afternoon. So... One of the questions I had about this was like, what does this mean for fevers? I already mm-hmm. mentioned it a little bit before. Mm-hmm. So 
the CDC has always established 100.4 and above is a fever. I think we're all pretty familiar with that. It's sure. roughly two degree increase from a 98.6. But if the average human temperature is lower, it's possible that the temperature indicating a fever could also be lower. That's mm-hmm. the thought process. I personally putting my own spin on this, don't think it's going to be really possible to make an individualized fever measurement, which is basically what this is postulating. Yeah. Like, we basically have to be like, your fever is this, and your mm-hmm. fever is this, because we're all at different ranges. And with the data that we have and the time that we have with patients and things like that, there's no way that's going to happen. But I do think that we can believe people when they say they run cooler. You know how you have that patient? You're like, yeah. I, I run cooler, so, like, when I'm 99.9, that's a fever for me. Yeah. I don't think we have to sit there and be like, nope, that's bullshit. You're, yeah. It's not 100.4. I think totally. we can believe those people. Yes. Um, and in reality, really high fevers are still going to be really high fevers. Yeah. And really, it's the low-grade fevers that have become debatable. And for most of the time, like, low-grade fevers really don't matter much in clinical decision-making. Like, right. we're not really debating, okay, you had a fever, you don't, so we're not going to offer you treatment. It's really for those infants less than three months old right. that it's probably the biggest deal. So, anyways, that's that's my dessert. Uh, we all may sit lower than 98.6. We may be 97.9. So 98 degrees will have to change their name. And <laughs> I think a range for temperature seems to make sense for me. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Another cool thing that the WHOOP does, just to plug yeah. WHOOP another time, is that it gives you your sort of baseline body temp at nighttime. Um, I know when I uh, thought I had COVID but wasn't totally sure, it was like, Girl, your temp is way higher than usual. <laughs> and it's so hard. Like at home, I have one of those temporal scanners and it was like, yeah, in the middle. So it was kind of, it was another another factor where it's nice to know what your baseline range is too. Yeah, that's a really good point that the, that the Whoop and other devices that you wear 24-7 have the ability to take those measurements and measure them to your baseline, which is an individualized fever measure. Fever measure. So yeah. I think that's a good plug. Uh, get your free month of whoop at uh, your doctor friends podcast slash whoop let's do it so good we're getting tight with these promotions man right all right real quick can i plug our door to shore thing in this episode all right go ahead and plug i just wanted to plug real quick because by the time this episode drops it'll be coming up on october 21st and on october 21st we've been tasked by Scotty Landis and Kurt Braunholer from the Bananas Podcast. If you guys don't listen to the Bananas Podcast, it's so fun. It is great, um, really silly, absurd news stories that Kurt and Scotty. Uh, Scotty has been a, a writer for a long time. Kurt Braunholer is a comedian and actor, and they're just so such lovely human beings. And they do this thing. This will be the third annual. It's called Door to Shore, and it started off as Scotty would just walk out of his house in the L.A. area and go west until he walked into the Pacific Ocean fully clothed. And now this is the third year, and he's tasking other bananimals, which we call ourselves, people that listen to the podcast. He's calling us also power bananas to get up, uh, walk out of our homes into the nearest body of water fully clothed and use that as an opportunity to do something absurd for charity. Um, so we're going to be raising um, money for the network, which is uh, advocating against domestic violence um, because October is National uh, Domestic Violence Awareness Month and we thought it was timely and a very good cause. Um, so yeah, I will be posting some stuff on Instagram about it and then I'll be posting the video of me walking the 3.9 miles from my house into Lake Michigan, which I know is less than the 19 miles that Scotty and Kurt are doing, but it's also into Lake Michigan in October and they're going into the Pacific Ocean. So I feel like I win for the cold factor. 
Yeah, in true your doctor friend's fashion, I'd like to point out if you are going to go into a very cold body of water to check with a doctor and make sure that you're safe enough to do that. If you're planning to go into a body of water with your clothes on, please don't do it by yourself. Have somebody nearby just in case there's problems. Yes. Uh, also, this sounds fun, and thank you for volunteering to be our... Uh, uh, banana hammock or whatever. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, we're bananimals. Yeah, I'll, oh, link banana to, I'll link to doortoshore.org, which is if you wanted to do this yourself. So you don't even have to donate to us. I don't care. If you want to do this absurd thing on your own and donate to your own charity, it's a fun thing to do. You can pick any body of water. And uh, Kurt and Scotty basically said if you film yourself doing it or whatever and you share it on their Instagram, they'll promote it and it'll be fun. Well, to wrap up... Um, Maybe don't walk into uh, a body of water with a weighted blanket on. That's something we can all agree on. But maybe do it for door to shore for charity. Just in just in regular clothes. Listen to your doctor friends. <laughs> the amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast.